chapter 10 is where we're going to be. Actually, we're going to be at the end of chapter 9 if you guys want to uh, make your way that direction. And where we're going to pick up at the end of chapter 9 is in verse 32. Uh, Last week, if you were here with us, or if you're able to catch up with us online, we went all the way through verse 31. And what we saw was this miraculous conversion of the uh, Apostle Paul. He was at that time Saul of Tarsus. And so we saw this amazing uh, light that he saw on the road to Damascus. And he had this miraculous conversion where he came to know Jesus on the road uh, that day. And so where we're going to be at now, and the reason we stopped there and going to transition, is we're actually going to see as uh, Paul was called to go first to the Gentiles, to be the apostle to the Gentiles, that actually the person that would first bring the word of God to them wasn't Paul, but was Peter. And so uh, what we're going to see is in the life of the apostle Peter, he is actually going to get the one, uh, be the one to first get the call to go to the Gentiles, which causes some of us to scratch our heads and wonder, why if God called Paul, would he have first sent Peter? And then you begin to think about the times and what were taking place. And remember, there was a complete amount of distrust for the Apostle Paul. What was going on with this guy? And so if the Holy Spirit is going to go to the Gentiles, what does he need to do? But there needs to be some legitimacy to the ministry. So who to find better for the Lord to pick out to send to the Gentiles than Peter? There's not anybody more legitimate in the Apostle ranks than this guy. And so this is where we're going to pick up here in verse 32. And we're going to get all the way through chapter 10. So buckle up your seatbelts. We are going to get there. In verse 32, now it came to pass, as Peter went through all the parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. And there he found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And so what we find is, here's Peter. He is now going around touring, essentially sharing the gospel with people uh, throughout the parts of the country, we're told. And what I like about this as we start is that Peter uh, did not let his fame, his success go to his head. I mean, you think about it. At this point, he's big time. He's one of the top three apostles for sure. He is uh, wanted by lots of people to come and speak. In fact, so excited are people about Peter is that they would even want to go and be in his shadows just so his shadow might heal them. And so he's got a lot of time, and yet in the middle of that, he lacked pretense. He wasn't all hung up on himself. He was going directly to the people uh, as he did here for this man named Aeneas. Now verse 34, and Peter said to him, Aeneas... Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. And then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. So now notice the ministry of Peter. He goes and he speaks healing into the life of Aeneas. He didn't say, by my power. He didn't say, I tell you, pick up your mat and walk. Instead, he says, Jesus the Christ heals you. Notice the focus of Peter's ministry. And it's this way throughout his ministry. It's always on Jesus the Christ, the anointed one, the Mashiach. He's the one doing the healing. And he focuses on that because what's most important about this whole situation with Aeneas isn't just physical healing. That so many times we get caught up and excited in physical healing. Lord, fix my situation. But if it's not Jesus who is the Christ doing the healing, then there is no spiritual healing. There's nothing for eternity to actually heal us. We are simply taking care of a temporary physical problem. And Captain Obvious here uh, is going to tell you, if it's temporary, it ain't going to last. 
There's only so long it's going to be effective. Eternal, it's going to last for all of eternity. And so Peter immediately focuses with Aeneas on the eternal healing that's provided by Christ. Now then, verse 36. At Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas, maybe the most unfortunate name in all the New Testament. This, I've been trying all week not to laugh at that, uh, but that shows you how childish I am. Um, Not a lot of mothers naming their daughters Dorcas these days either, so I'm not the only one that didn't care for that name. Uh, But, excuse me, this woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And so what we see is in verse 38, And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples had heard that Peter was there, and they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. And so what we find is this lady, whose name is Tabitha, translated Dorcas, was a woman full of charity and good works. She was doing many good things for the New Testament church. In fact, here in just a minute, we're going to read that she was a great seamstress. She was making uh, clothes and blankets and all the things a seamstress would make. She was providing a tremendous amount of practical things for the church. And so now that she's passed away, guess what? They're upset. And isn't it amazing, by the way, uh, how often, think about this, how often God uses the practical to make way for the spiritual. That God takes these very practical things. She's simply a seamstress, and yet there's this great deal of mourning and it makes you wonder, how many people would be uh, terribly upset if the, the pastors or the prophets or the preachers passed away nearly as much as they were for Dorcas? Because the reality is she was providing a very real need for them. And so the mourning was great because there, were, there was practical application. So it doesn't mean we're not sad if something happens to our pastor, sad if something happens to a prophet or a preacher, uh, but the reality is uh, if he's sitting up here right now talking to you without pants, there's going to be a way different message, right? Like people are not nearly as excited to listen to what I have to say if I'm not wearing clothes. So the practical has to be in place so the spiritual can actually happen. Now then verse 39, And then Peter arose and went to them. And when he had come, they brought him to the upper room, and all the widows stood by weeping, showing tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And then they gave her his hand, lifted her up. And when she had called the saints and the, when he had called the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. And so it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon the Tanner. And so now we see this unbelievable miracle taking place for the apostle Peter. He goes uh, to these people there in Joppa, and he actually raises uh, Dorcas from the dead again through the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet, here's things that I want to point out as we wrap up this chapter and head to the next about the ministry of Peter. Uh, First of all, notice with me in verse 39 how he began. Uh, He was called to, he was asked to please come and and speak to us. Please come and pray. Uh, And in verse 39, he arose and he went. (laughs) Peter made himself available. Remember, he was 
a much in demand as a public speaker. Folks wanted to hear from him, and yet a person on person, life on life, he was willing to go and make himself available to minister even to a dead woman. I mean, he wasn't ministering to some great high public figure. This woman had already died, and yet he made himself available. And I've shared that with you several times, that the greatest ability we can have as Christians is availability. Just simply making ourselves available. God, here I am. Use me any way you see fit. If you'd like to, in my life right now where I'm at, use me. And Peter understood that. He made himself available. Now, verse 40, the next thing to note about the ministry of Peter is, but he put them all out, and he knelt down, and he prayed. He was a man who was not afraid to go to the Lord in prayer. And, and what he knew about this situation, and, and I would tell you, many of you have been in this spot before, we get ourselves in positions where we are not capable. We are not qualified. We don't have the degrees on the wall. We don't know what in the world we're supposed to do in this spot, and yet what we do know is one who does. And we can go to him in prayer. I think about how many times, and Angela and I have talked about this over the last several years, that we get put in spots where we're not actually capable. I'll just speak to myself. I get put in positions where I'm, I don't have any knowledge or understanding. And, and we were talking about one of these occasions, and the kids must have been listening, and I said, sometimes it's just like someone in my ear going, awkward, like this is awkward. And apparently Madeline had heard that because we were having a discussion in the front seat. I'm sure it was a very civil discussion between the two of us. And from the back seat I heard, awkward. <laughs> but sometimes that's how these things go, right? Like they're, it's awkward. We don't know what to do or where to step in or how we can speak in this spot. And yet you have the ability, you have access to speak to the one who does. And do you trust him enough to take that situation, that spot to him? Peter did. He knew there was no way he had the power to raise this woman from the dead, and yet his ministry was one of prayer. Now, because he was willing to make himself available, and then he was willing to be prayerful, what you see is in verse 42, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. His ministry was one that was fruitful. There was fruit that happened in his ministry because he was available, he was prayerful, and then many came not to praise Peter, but came to know the Lord. And so that leads me to this question. Have any of you here ever heard of Mordecai Ham? <laughs> Nobody. That's what I thought. Uh, Mordecai Ham in the early 1900s was a, uh, a locally known uh, preacher that would go around and do revival meetings mostly in the southeastern part of the United States. And when he was in one particular area leading one small congregation, not seeming like it was a terribly uh, fruitful ministry that was happening uh, late one evening, he's at this revival and a young man comes up and he wants to accept Christ. And so Mordecai Ham leads this young man uh, down the Roman road. He accepts Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And I wonder how many times, how many nights, uh, Mordecai Ham, Lord, wondering, is there any fruit in this ministry? Am I doing any good? I'm, I'm going to these revivals. I'm trying to lead people to the Lord. I don't know if I'm doing any good at all. And yet, uh, what we find out later as history plays out is that uh, the young man Mordecai Ham led to Christ was named uh, William uh, Graham. We know him as Billy Graham. You see, there's a lot of Mordecai Hams out there that are wondering if their ministry is fruitful that are wondering if your ministry is productive, 
But the reality is uh, we can't control that at all. What we can control is will I make myself available and am I willing to go to my knees in prayer and allow God to provide the increase. Now, for the Apostle Peter, one last uh, trait that we see that we can observe in his ministry in verse 43, and so it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon a tanner. Now, that might seem like a verse we just pass over, but what you might understand is a tanner, especially this time of year, was one that would take uh, the kill from the hunters and would actually uh, skin it and tan the hides. Now, seems like a great trade, a great job. Uh, that is, unless you're a Jew. <laughs> because if you're a Jew, you're told in the Old Testament law that if you touch any dead thing, you're clean. You're unclean. So, a tanner was ceremonially unclean consistently. Now what you find is, here's Peter. I mean, he was a New Testament Christian for sure, leading the church, and yet in him he would have known what the Old Testament law said. There would have been legalistic tendencies that we're going to see over this next chapter that God is unwinding, but what Peter began to understand is that uh, Jesus loved Simon the Tanner. <laughs> he, he wasn't nearly as upset about his trade as what his Jewish counterparts were. And so you begin to see flexibility happening in the life of the Apostle Peter that's going to continue into this 10th chapter. Chapter 10, verse 1 says, And there was a certain man of Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man, one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to people and prayed to God always. And so now we're introduced to a new character, a Cornelius who was a centurion. That just meant he had, a, he had charge over 100 Roman soldiers. And so he was a man of some authority, a man of some means. But what we're also told is while he was a Gentile, a Roman, he still feared God. He was a religious man. That's what that word devout means. He was a family oriented, one who feared God along with his household. He was in charge of his household. Uh, he also was a generous man. He was giving alms generously and prayerful. But you know what he was not? Saved. He was not a saved man because he knew not Jesus Christ. Now immediately, we begin to get up in arms. Wait a minute, this guy was a great guy. I mean, he, he was religious. He loved his family. He worked hard. He provided generously. He was prayerful. How is it that he doesn't get to go to heaven? Because he did not know Jesus in his heart. Now, before you get all upset, and we get uh, all bothered about this, the fact that he's not going to heaven, and, and we cry out to the Lord, how is it this great guy, and many of us have known great men and women like this. How is it that he's not going to get to go to heaven, but that other guy is? Well, for one, you don't know about the other guy. And two, um, I want you to notice with me how much God loves Cornelius, far more than we do. In fact, over these next several verses, you're going to see to what extents God will go to actually bring Cornelius into his family, that God is going to go to great lengths to pursue this man. Now, verse 3 about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And so he said to him, Your prayers and alms have come up for a memorial God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon a Tanner, 
whose house is by the sea, and he will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants, a devout soldier from among them, who, those who waited on him continually. And so when he explained all these things to him, he sent him to Joppa. And so now we see Cornelius is praying, and what's God do? He pursues him very intentionally. He gives him a, a vision. An angel shows up and speaks to him and tells him about Simon Peter there in Joppa. Now, how in the world is he going to find Simon Peter in this town that had thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people, a major seaport there on the Mediterranean Sea? You, you might remember Joppa as a, a famous story in the Old Testament. This is the place where Jonah fled from God, from this location. So it was a busy, bustling city. How on earth are we going to find this guy that God is sending us to? Well, one way would be if he's staying in the house of a tanner. <laughs> Everybody's going to know the local tanner, right? Everybody's going to smell the local tanner's house. It's not hard to find uh, that guy. And so you begin to see the practical things that God puts in place to actually make, again, the spiritual things happen. Now, one question you might read this story, and we see this angel coming down to Cornelius, why didn't the angel just share the gospel with him? I mean, he gets a vision of an angel. He's already inquiring of God. He's asking God questions. An angel shows up and says, hey, I want you to go uh, find this guy named Peter in Joppa, you know, miles and miles away. Why didn't the angel just share the gospel right then? And the reason is because in this season, in this harvest is what Jesus called it, he is looking for workers. He is looking for chosen vessels. In this time, right now, you are actually the ones that are called to take the gospel message to people, not angels. There will come a time, according to Revelation, where even the angels will fly overhead and present the gospel. But for right now, in the church age, you and I are the chosen vessels, just like the Apostle Paul we read about uh, last week. And so uh, what we see is we're chosen vessels, and we have now an opportunity because we've been chosen to go and share the gospel with people. Do you realize what a special opportunity it is? In fact, as God was speaking to Daniel in Daniel chapter 12, uh, this is what he says about people who share the gospel message. Uh, verse 3 of chapter 12 said, Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the star in ever. You imagine that promise. This is the promise for those that turn many to righteousness. If you want to experience something truly awesome, just share the gospel. You never know. They may turn towards righteousness, and the promise of Scripture is you get to shine like a star forever. That's not a bad promise. Sounds pretty good to me. Now, meanwhile, as this is taking place in the life of Cornelius, we're going to go back to Joppa, back with Peter, and we pick up in verse 9. And the next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up to the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. And then he became, then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance. And he saw heaven open in an object like a great sheet bound on, at the four corners, descending to him and let down to the earth. And in it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts and creeping things and birds of the air. 
And so Peter now goes up to the rooftop while they're preparing lunch. It's, it's lunchtime. He's getting hungry. Now, in the Middle East and in, the, in this Mediterranean area especially, it's not uncommon for them to have flat roofs. This was actually an area they would use as a living room. They would get up there and get some of that Mediterranean breeze. And so apparently Peter wasn't skilled at helping to make lunch, so he decides to go up and just pray over things. And while he's up there and he's praying, what he's looking out at as he sees the Mediterranean, but sailboats, right? So now his, his belly's hungry, and then he gets a vision of a sail coming down from heaven, and on this sail or this sheet, he sees all kinds of four-footed animals and beasts and creeping things, basically all kinds of animals descending down from heaven, some kosher, some uh, not kosher. And invariably, one of those animals would have been a pig, right? This would have been the most detestable thing to any of the Jewish people would have been uh, Miss Piggy. And so no doubt there, were, there, were, there was pork coming down from heaven and what Peter sees is the first ever pig in a blanket. Oh, come on. Like I've been chuckling about that all week. That's good stuff right there. So, so he sees pigs in a blanket coming down from heaven and what, you, what we're going to find here uh, and this is going to play out for Peter through the rest of the story, is that God is allowing his present-day situation to actually make way for a future ministry. That he is doing this uh, in our lives too, by the way. There is a present-day situation that each one of us has that God is working us through, and it is making way. He is using it to make a way for a future ministry opportunity. Now, uh, Peter speaks to the Lord. Actually, he gets spoken to by the Lord first in verse 13. And a voice came to him saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said in verse 14, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. So the Lord says, here's Peter, he's hungry. Very practically, the Lord says, Well, rise, kill and eat. Take care of the issue. And Peter's response was, Not so, Lord which, by the way, is a complete contradiction in terms. Not so Lord cannot exist, because uh, if he is your Lord, you cannot tell him no. That means he is your master. So you can say, uh, not so, buddy, or I don't think so, pal, or no way, Jose. All these things are acceptable, but not so uh, Lord means that I'm not really viewing you as the master and the one operating in my life. And so instead, what you find out is uh, Peter, right now in this spot, is exhibiting a bit of what uh, I call uh, meatloaf faith. And any of you may not know what meatloaf faith is. It goes a little something like this. When we tell the Lord, I'll do anything for you. I would do anything for love. Anything for you, Lord. But I won't do that. No, we do that to him, though, don't we? Like, we, we'll tell the Lord, you're number one. You're first in my life. I'll do anything for you, Jesus. Boy, I'm not going to do that. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, who's going to eat this unclean thing? And, and the word Peter uses in the Greek was koinos. Koinos is the word, and what it means is common, ordinary, or stripped of value. So as Peter is seeing these animals come down, and the Lord's telling him, he's untangling this legalism in his heart. He's already started by having him stay with Simon the Tanner, and now it's getting more untangled. He's telling him, uh, Lord, I can't touch anything that is koinos, anything that is common or unclean or stripped of value. By the way, it's the same phrase they used for Gentiles. They're koinos. They have no 
value. In fact, it was taught in Hebrew school that for Gentiles, they were actually the fodder or the fuel for the fires of hell. I'm not going to get anywhere near uh, that thing. Now then, verse 15, And a voice spoke to him again a second time, saying, What God has cleansed, you must not call common or koinos. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven. So Peter, being a little bit thick-headed, God has to tell him three different times on multiple occasions. But what he's saying is, do not call unclean what I have made clean. And it made me wonder this week as I was thinking about this, is how many things do we call common or clean in our lives that the Lord has said are clean? How many things have we deemed unclean or common or stripped of value that he says, no, no, that thing is cleansed? And the first that came to mind was uh, myself. How many times do we do that to ourselves where we say, well, I can't fulfill this ministry or I can't step into that situation or I'm not good enough, I don't have the right words because I'm unclean, Lord. I'm just common. I, I have no value. I've been stripped of any kind of value. And so there's no way you can use me in this spot. I'm unclean. Except when you get to 1 John, this is what John writes in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't call something unclean that I have cleansed. That's what God says. That's how he views you and I. He has cleansed us. And the the term that John uses here in in the old King James is be ye being cleansed. It's a continual cleansing process. It's a one-time cleansing for all of eternity. And then because uh, we're prone to make mistakes, it's a continual cleansing process. And so that also means a continually being made clean process. Now, one more spot to turn when we think about ourselves and how quick ourselves common. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. That you were actually chosen. You were selected, handpicked by God before the foundation of the earth for good works is what Paul's going to go on to say in the second chapter. Works that he has actually predestined, predetermined for you, even before the foundation of the earth, these things were created for you. So who are we to call ourselves unclean, unworthy, without value? And we cannot. Now the second group that we're likely to call common, uh, this group is easy to pick on, uh, it's other people. This, this is what happens, right? As, as we begin to grow in the Lord and we begin to grow in knowledge of Him, what happens is people around us, boy, they get way filthier. I mean, it's amazing how much worse, by the way, that um, my sin looks on you than it ever did on me. I mean, my, my sin on you looks horrendous. On me, it didn't look nearly that bad. And so what we see is we begin to get in our minds uh, this, this idea that I've elevated because God so loved me, but then everybody else they just begin to be common. And we, and we start to think, surely, Lord, you can't save them. I mean, I don't even know them in that spot. They're, they're sinners after all. And so, for example, I'll go back to the Old Testament. This is, oh, this is Moses being addressed by God in 
uh, Numbers chapter 20. And when we get to Numbers 20, what we find is the children of Israel have been brought out of Egypt. They've been brought in through the desert, and time and time again, God has provided for them. Jehovah Jireh shows up big time for them over and over again. And yet, what do they do time and time again? They complain. I mean, talk about a bunch of whiners. Over and over again, they, they complain about God not providing for us in this season, in that season. And so now here they're in this spot, and they have no water. God has already had Moses strike a rock, and water poured forth out of the rock miraculously so they could have water, and yet they doubt him again. God, he doesn't love us. He doesn't care. And they complain. And so God speaks to Moses in verse 10 of chapter 20. He says, And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And this is how Moses addressed them. He says, Hear now, you rebels! Must we bring water for you out of this rock? God didn't tell Moses to speak to them at all like that. Here now, yours, all you other people are messing up my Jesus right now. I'd have it going on if it wasn't for you. And so they, they, he comes down on them, and then in verse 11, and then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly in the congregation and the animals drank. You see, for Moses, he lost sight of himself. He forgot how much God had delivered him from, and what God said is, Moses, I want you to speak to the rock, not hit the rock. You see, the rock was a symbol of Jesus who was going to be struck once for all mankind, not a second time. And so he made a very grave error in being angry with the people in the spot where God was not angry with them. And so many times, this is the place we're in. We get angry with sinful people around us. We get angry with people who aren't with it around us. But they're just doing the thing they know to do. And God has tried everything possible to get to them, to, to water them, to bring them back to, the, to his word. But we can actually stop that if we want to put our fists down and say, you sinners, and strike the rock. Now then, the final thing that we can tend to call uncommon or unclean, is our situation. That we can oftentimes take our situation and we can be convinced that there is no value. Think about what koinos means. Stripped away of any value or worth. We can look at it and go, there's no way you're going to get value out of this, God. There's no way out of this spot that I'm in that you can have any kind of glory come out of this. And yet when we do that, when we do that, we are shortening God's ability in our life. We are selling him short of what he can actually do. We, we are admitting, we don't believe, Romans 8.28, that all things can be used to good for the purpose of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. All things can be used to good. That's what the Lord says. That means every single situation is not common or unclean. That he is at work in that spot, oftentimes through us. We're often the conduit that he wants to work in in those situations, if we'll let him. Now then, verse 17, And while Peter, was wonder, while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. 
And they called and asked, where is Simon, whose surname is Peter? And asked if he was lodging there. And while Peter thought about the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men who are seeking you. Rise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And so what we find is in this spot, as Peter is sitting there on the rooftop contemplating what God has just shown him with this vision, there's a knock at the door. And what, and what is transpiring is God is actually working on both people at the same time. Understand that when it's a work of the Lord, he is working on all avenues in all aspects, on all angles, and in this case, two very different people, very different backgrounds and lives he is working on simultaneously. And what he's doing as he works is creating unity. If, if anyone ever comes up to you, by the way, and says, thus saith the Lord, I need you to empty out your checking account and deposit it all in my name. That if that's the case, and you've not gotten Holy Spirit confirmation about that, uh, ding, 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 it might not be from the Lord. That when God is at work, he will be working on both sides. And what he's really doing is preparing them for their next ministry opportunity. That's again what he's doing in the life of Peter. He's getting his heart ready for what was getting ready to happen, what was getting ready to take place. Now, years ago as God was uh, just miraculously in my life and we were maybe six months into Parkland Chapel, we're going there and I, I was driving to this little town of Cuba, Missouri. Uh, we were building a Dollar Tree and on the road there's no cell phone coverage and it's a, a terrible road to drive down actually, Highway 8 not good. It's twisty, turny roads, no shoulder. So you got to pay attention and you can't even listen to anything on the radio. And I remember just thinking about what God was up to uh, in my life. And I've been listening to tons of Bible teaching and what uh, he was changing in me, the things he was knocking off and just changing completely in my life. Uh, what he told me, he whispered to me was, uh, you're going to have to tell this story. You're going to have to speak to this. And I did my Peter. Not so, Lord. Please don't make me get up in front of people and talk. I don't want to share what you're doing. I'll have to tell them how awful I've been. But God said, no, you're going to have to share this. You need to get ready. Now, wouldn't you know it, uh, just a few days later, we're in church after service, and uh, Jason Samples comes up to me. He leads our Wednesday night prayer meetings and times for testimonies. And he says, hey, I know I don't really know you very well. You guys just started coming, but while I was in prayer, and the Lord told me I really needed to ask you to share at this upcoming Wednesday night service. I'm like, oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> that was my answer. I'm like, yeah, I know. He told me too. But, but the thing was, it didn't come out of the I knew fully that he was going to ask me that, and they didn't know me at all. Like They had not really ever heard me get up and speak. They didn't know what I was going to say. They didn't even know if I was a Christian. And the reality was just months before I'd actually accepted Christ for the first time in my life. And so God was working on both sides of the, uh, both sides of this situation in both people, and he'll do the same for you. Now verse 22, and they said, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. And then, in verse 23, he invited them in and lodged them. And on the next day, Peter went away with them and some brethren 
from Joppa accompanied them. And so what we find in Peter's life is he's beginning to get revelation from the Lord. And, and by the way, if he gives you revelation, if you spend time in his word, he will reveal things to you. It will always be progressive. He won't just open the floodgates and give you so much you can't take it all in. He will progressively show you his will in your life. And so Peter's already pondering on these things, and he's thinking about what God's up to, and then knock, knock, knock on the door. More revelation happening. And so what we find is here, he takes a step of faith by an end. Why? Because these were Gentile soldiers. And according to their law, they had no business being in a Jew's house. Now that's funny because remember what this Jew did for a living. He was a tanner. He was perpetually unclean, but that goes back to that idea of my sin looking worse on you than it does on me. Wait a minute. We don't want someone to make us more unclean. I mean, I'm already unclean, but you're really filthy. But what we see is for Peter, he takes his chance. He invites these men into this house where he's staying. The entanglements, the entanglements of legalism are starting to loosen in his life. And you have to wonder when it comes to progressive revelation, why doesn't God just give us everything all at once? Like, why doesn't he just tell us what he's up to. Wouldn't this whole process be easier if he would just tell me what he's up to? But what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 55, this is the reality for our brains. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor my ways, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. If God revealed to us everything he had planned, it would blow your mind. And the reality is, it would take no faith, and we're not capable of handling that much information. I mean, the truth of the matter is, struggle for you and I just to find butter at Walmart, right? Like, I don't even, did they move it again this week? Like, that's hard. Imagine if God unveiled his entire plan for your life all at once. It would require no faith. I wouldn't have to take one step at a time and depend upon him. Now then, verse 22, as we continue. Excuse me, verse 24, as we continue. And the following day, they entered Caesarea. So they've stayed the night now with Peter. The following day, he leaves with them. And the following day, they entered Caesarea. Now, Cornelius was waiting for them, and he called together his relatives and close friends. And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up. I myself am also a man. And so in this very dangerous moment, it might not seem like it, but it was, for both Peter and for Cornelius, he bowed down to worship the feet of a man. And any time we bow ourselves to another man or woman, it is a dangerous spot to be in. Regardless of the reputation, regardless of how good of a person they seem to be, no man is worthy of praise except for the man. He is the one and only. And so the danger there is that we can let a man get in the way for us of the man. And many of you, if you've been hurt by church, you've probably been in that spot before. Or maybe you've let someone have a little bit too high of a place in your life, thought a little too much of them, that they had things going on, and then been sorely disappointed. And what happens is we tend to walk away from the man when the whole time he was just trying to get our attention. He wanted our focus on him and on him alone. And so Peter tells Cornelius, stand up, I'm just a man. Verse 27, and as he talked with them, 
he went in and found many who had come together. And so Cornelius had literally gathered everybody he knew, his family, his friends, come on in. What a wonderful testimony for Cornelius. Come on in, I want you to hear about Jesus. I mean, think about that when you go to invite people. I mean, what's the worst thing that can happen? They say no. I mean, for Cornelius, he wanted all the people he loved and cared about to know eternal salvation. And so he invites everybody in. And then in verse 28, and then he said, this is Peter speaking, he said to them, you, excuse me, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or to go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Now Peter's starting to put the thing together. Wait a minute, Lord. This is what you were talking about with the blanket from heaven. Thank you so much. Uh, it is not my place to call any man common or unclean. I'm to drop this pretense. And now application begins to happen in the revelation that Peter received from the Lord. And it's important to note, as he mentions, that this was a violation of the law, what law he was talking about, that for the Jews, they developed what was called the Talmud. That's not God's law. They took God's law, and then they tried to add commentary to it. They tried to go through and say, well, God's law did a pretty good job, but we're going to give you more details into God's law. I'm going to tell you exactly what he meant. And so when they would come up against Jesus as a lawbreaker, the law he was breaking wasn't our Old Testament like we sometimes think, but instead their Jewish Talmud, their man-made law. And so it wasn't God's law at all to separate people. In fact, what God wanted to do was actually use the Jewish people as a, a point of, I shouldn't have said separate. He wanted to separate, but so that those could be drawn into the Jews. He, he plucked them out as a special people. He anointed them so that the nations all around would go, man, what is it about your God? What, is, what makes you so different than me? Why don't you eat that thing? Or why do you pray in that way? Why does your God love you so much? I wonder if he could love me like that. And so God's plan all along was to actually use the nation of Israel as a way to draw people to him, not keep people away, which is what man stepped in and did. This is the reason why when you actually look at the Exodus and the nation of Israel being brought out of Egypt, they also came with a mixed multitude. Guess what? They weren't Jews. They were saved in the Passover, brought through the Red Sea, but they weren't Jewish. Why? Because God is always all about drawing people to himself, not pushing them away. Now, that's enough of that sidetrack. Verse 29, Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked then, for what reason have you come? And so Cornelius said, four days ago, I was fasting until this hour. And at the ninth hour, I prayed in my house. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms are remembered in the sight of the Lord. Have you ever wondered if God actually hears the prayers of an unbeliever? Have you ever been told that he doesn't? I have. Here's a scriptural reference that says, not only did he hear his prayers, but he received his prayers and made action because of them. Now, verse 32. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. And so I sent immediately, and you have done well to come. Now therefore, we are all present here before you. All the things God can 
excuse me, to hear all the things commanded you by God. And so what we see is here's a whole group of people. They're in Syria, and they are hungry to hear the word of God. They cannot wait. Cornelius says, everybody's here. They're all ready to hear the word of the Lord. Can you imagine being that hungry for God's word? So hungry that you would go out of your way to see this strange Jewish man come and just to share whatever it is that he has to share. And notice what Peter does. Immediately, he goes to Cornelius. So immediately he's come. He doesn't waste any time whatsoever. And I have to wonder, how hungry am I for the word of the Lord? Am I hungry enough to just listen uh, once a week on Sundays? Am I hungry enough to, to maybe read a few times a year, church every now and again? I mean, what possible thing or profession do you know you could go in and you only did it once a week and be good at it? I can't think of any. I can't think of any relationship that if I only spoke to you uh, every six months or a year or a couple years when I really needed something, that it was any kind of a healthy relationship at all. And yet we treat God like this so very often. Now here, these men and women are gathered. They are hungry to hear the word. And in verse 35, what we see is, uh, excuse me, four. but Peter opened his mouth and said, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. God doesn't pick favorites is what Peter's saying here. And so if, if ever there's a time where we think God has picked this group out or that group out and they're his favorite, he doesn't like them, Peter says, truly I'm seeing God's showing no partiality. There, there's no favoritism with the Lord. And, and the question really is, uh, for me, do I trust him enough to believe that? Do I trust him enough to go and speak to those people when he's put them on my heart to know they're not going to strike me down? Or if they do, it'll be for my own good. And so do we have enough trust to believe it? In verse 35, but in every, uh, in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. And the word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed through all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. And so what we see is Peter saying, look, this word has actually been sent to you. The word you crave, the word you wanted to hear has been sent to you in the person of Jesus Christ. That what John says in John chapter 1, verse 14, is that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That the word wasn't just merely a written word. It was a living, breathing document, a living, breathing the word of God all summed up in the person of Jesus Christ. So what you seek, what he's saying is what you seek is actually the person. And he's the anointed one. Now in verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who are oppressed by the devil for God was with him. And we are witnesses of these things which he did in Jerusalem excuse me, which he did in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem and whom they killed by hanging on a tree. And so here Peter's saying is it was this person of Jesus Christ that you're waiting for. In him dwells the Holy Spirit and he was the one whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Now why does Peter bring up the cross? Why in this spot does he bring it up to these Gentiles? It was for a very specific reason. It's good for us to note. Because the Jews often get blamed for killing Christ. But do you know that their form of capital punishment wasn't crucifixion? It was stoning. 
Jesus wasn't stoned. He was crucified. Now, did the Jews bring him to trial before Pontius Pilate? Absolutely they did. But guess who killed him? The Gentiles. <laughs> These Romans. They crucified him. And the reality is, when we look at who is responsible for the killing, the crucifixion of the king, it was all of us. Gentile, every single one of us. My sin, as much as your sin, nailed him to that place. And yet, in the midst of his pain, and in the agony, and in the torture, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgiveness poured forth. And so the same forgiveness that's available to the Gentile is available to the Jew alike. That's the reason Peter brings it up. Now verse 41, uh, excuse me, verse 40, In him God raised on the third day and showed him openly, not to all people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. And to him all the prophets witness that through his name, who, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. And so what Peter proceeds to do from that point is give them the straight, simple gospel message. He gives them the straight scoop. And he says, look, if you want to know who's a witness to what I'm talking to you about, I was an eyewitness. I was one of the guys that saw it with my own eyes. I saw the resurrected Lord. Not only did I see him, but I ate a meal with him. Why is that important? Because ghosts don't eat meals. Right? We, we lost Willis in the sixth sense. Ghosts don't eat. And, and that, they had the same belief then. They actually had this, this idea, this uh, Gnostic view that it began to take hold in the church where uh, Jesus didn't resurrect as a physical body but only a ghost. You, what you saw was ghost Jesus. But if that's the case, then how is it I had a meal with him? How is it I saw his physical presence and we enjoyed a fish breakfast on the Sea of Galilee? That's what Peter's saying. But the most important piece of this message in verse 43 that he shares is whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. I've just talked to you about every one of us is responsible for crucifying Christ. But whoever believes in him as a son of God in their heart will receive remission of sins. It doesn't get any better than that. He speaks this to a, a whoever or a whosoever if you go back to John 3.16. So if we've got any whosoever's in here, good news. This message is for you and all the other whosoever's out there. That's what Peter is Now then, uh, verse 44. While Peter was speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. Peter brought some Jewish buddies. They couldn't believe it. As many came with Peter... Because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Important to note that speaking in tongues is always from man to God. And so that gift is actually one that glorifies God. It's not the same as prophecy, which is from God to man. And so this gift, they're exercising, glorifying God. And then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who receive the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And then they asked him to stay a few days. And so for the entire household of Cornelius, all those who had gathered there, the Holy Spirit actually fell down upon them 
And they were baptized beautifully, saved eternally because God was so determined to pursue Cornelius. Now, how then did the Spirit move? How did the Spirit move? If this is you and maybe you're wondering, how, how could the Spirit move in these people's life? How could he move in my life? Notice with me, it was while Peter was speaking these words. What words were, was he sharing but the words of salvation? The words of Holy Scripture, God's Word. He was speaking out to them, and it was at this point that the Holy Spirit actually moved around and moved upon them. As God's Word was being taught, that's the key. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, this is what Paul writes. He says in verse 16 of chapter 3, Let the Word of Christ dwell richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns, in spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Sounds like a church service, doesn't it? But what's the key to that? It's the word of Christ dwelling in you. And so the, the beginning of the Holy Spirit moving around is actually the word being taught, God's word being shared. And so what Jesus is telling Nicodemus about the Holy Spirit is in John chapter 3, verse 8. I'll go there quickly if you hang with me. John chapter 3. I lost John. APB out for John. All right, found him. John chapter 3, verse 8. Jesus sharing now to Nicodemus about the Holy Spirit. He says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So like the wind, you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. This is what it's like in a relationship with the Holy Spirit. So the question is, if that's the, the relationship, how do we catch the wind? I mean, if the wind is going this way, I get my sail up and catch the wind. And, and I wanted to leave you with this. Uh, three different ways to catch the wind of the Spirit. Uh, first of all, read the Word. Spend time in the Word of God. How else are you going to get to know your Savior? The God of the universe gave us this. It's living, it's breathing, it's active. Every day we can pick it up. We can spend time with Him. If you want the Holy Spirit to move in your life and you want a powerful, dynamic relationship with Him, one Jesus Himself said was going to be dynamite, dunamos power in your life. If you want that, reading the Word is the first step. The second one is uh, obeying the Word of God. That this is usually where the brakes get put on. I'm reading it, but I don't know about obeying it. I mean, that seems uh, really hard. But what John says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And he goes on to say, And His commandments are not burdensome. That as we grow in our relationship, as the wind of the Spirit works in us, we begin to obey His Word, but it's not a burden. It's not laws and tax and things being put on us and pressure, but then instead, I can obey His Word just simply because He loved me. And, and, and I want to show Him that I love Him, but it's not a burden. It's a, a get-to relationship and not a have-to. I'm not forced into loving God. I'm not forced into obeying his word, but I begin to understand and grow in this relationship to realize that if he put it in his word, it's because it's good for me. It's not that he's a prude with a bunch of rules. He knows what's good for us and what's bad for us. 
And so obeying him, there's actually love that's interlaced in his law. And so obeying his commandments is the second. And then thirdly, it's sharing the word. There is maybe no better experience you can have spiritually than sharing the word with people. As you read and you begin to be more confident that the Holy Spirit's going to use you and you're obeying what he's doing in your life, it's going to be second nature to share what he's up to. It's going to just roll off your tongue. That, that this is what Jesus is doing in my life. And as you share the word, what you're going to find is that it begins to be effective in the lives around you. Life on life, person on person, one at a time. You just begin to see him actually working in the lives of others. All because you've allowed him to work in yours first. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you for your holy scriptures. Thank you, Lord, for your word, which is ultimately a letter written to us, a relationship that you want to have to us. With Thank you, Father, that you've desired so deeply to have a relationship with us, that you would send people out of their way just to speak into our lives, out of their way just to, to reach us, and knowing that the same thing's going to happen for us as we trust you, that you're going to send us completely to the other side of the town, of the world, of the county. Who knows where you're going to send us, Lord? But you've got people specifically in mind for us to reach. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for what you're doing in our lives today that are going to present future ministry opportunities, especially as I'm thinking about families gathering and thanksgivings and all the things that happen and take place. Lord, help us to be thankful for what you're doing in our lives. Thank you, Jesus, for saving us. Thank you for redeeming us. Please help us to be able to share what you're up to in our lives with our family and friends this next week. Oh, I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand. to shoot you like a gun I used to hold you like a hammer tried to nail down everyone I used to keep you in a steeple I used to bind you in April I used to take you like prescription without knowing what I took but now I just don't
Mercy is a mystery And fear is no good reason To believe in anything So now I just don't